You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Like Bevan said, my name's Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor, and we are um, in a series of messages where we are comparing some of the ideas that you find in the major religions in the world, and we're comparing that with um, Christianity. So we've been doing that for a few weeks, and this morning we're going to continue doing that. And what we've seen so far is there are two springs from which the major religions in the world, the major streams of thought that have shaped the religions of the world come from. Last week we talked about one of the springs, which is India, and what comes out of that, which is what is referred to as the Eastern religions. And today we're going to talk about Abraham. And out of Abraham, you have religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All are considered Abrahamic religions. All three of these religions are monotheistic. The word monotheism is the idea of mono meaning one. Theism, theos, is God. The idea that there is one and only one God. There's not multiple gods. It's not everything is God. There's not a force. It's there's one God, and he is a personal God. They all have that in common. They all believe that this one God created the world. They believe that this one God is still involved in the events of the world, and that this one God has revealed himself to the world. Now, there's disagreement about what the, um, what the divinely inspired texts are, and we'll kind of explore a little bit of that today and then also into next week, but they all believe that this one God has given instructions for life and how to live. Now, despite the similarities in these three, in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, there are major differences. And anyone who takes the time to explore these three religions is going to come to the conclusion that these are three unique and different religions. They're not three versions of the same religion. They're not kind of one religion interpreted through three different cultures, but they have very, very different teachings about God, about reality, about how we're supposed to live. So even though there's some that they have in common and they claim to have the same source as their religion, they are very different and very unique. So today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the first of the three, which is Judaism, the first of the Abrahamic <laughs> religions, which is Judaism. And as we dive into this topic today, there are several things that make today's topic challenging. One of the things that makes this topic challenging is as you explore the history of the Jewish people and also the Jewish faith, what you find is that it is as much about race as it is religion. You don't choose to be a Jewish person like you might choose to be a Christian. You're born a Jewish person. And just because you're a Jewish person doesn't mean that you're religious. An important part of Jewish life is observing the holidays and going through traditions. So stuff like Hanukkah or Passover or even observing the Sabbath. These are just an important part of Jewish life. And just because you observe the traditions doesn't mean that you believe in the foundations from which those traditions or those teachings came from. And so because of this, there's people out there, like uh, Larry King was one, and Larry King was a professing atheist. He didn't believe that there even was a God, but he's a Jewish person and he participated in different aspects of Jewish life. And so he had a video on YouTube about how to do a Seder meal, which is one of the meals during Passover. So here's somebody who observes the traditions, but he was a professing atheist. He didn't even believe in God. So this makes it a challenging 
topic to explore. Another thing that makes this topic challenging is the history of persecution and opposition. Just this last week on Monday, I was driving into work and I was listening to the radio, and the trial for the um, shooter at the synagogue in Pittsburgh who killed 11 worshipers in 2018, the trial was beginning for, um, against that man and the, they're seeking ju- justice for what he did. And so there's a long history of persecution and opposition. Another trial that was recently in the news um, was about a conviction that they got about against one of the perpetrators of the Holocaust. They're still bringing people to justice related to the Holocaust. The Holocaust obviously is one of the darkest events in modern history when six million Jewish people were killed by the Nazis simply because they were Jewish. So there's a long history of persecution and opposition, and it's something that's present in modern times. Then another thing that makes this topic challenging is you have modern politics. And modern politics adds a layer of complexity. So on May 14, 1948, the new state of Israel was declared and became the homeland to Jewish people immigrating from all over the world. And Israel, the state of Israel, is consistently in our headlines here in the United States. And among Christians, there's debate, not necessarily political debate, but debate about what role will Israel play in the end times? What role will Israel play when Jesus returns and wraps up history. So you have well-educated, good-hearted Christians, faithful Christians on one side who say that Israel will play a central key role in the end times, and then you have well-educated, faithful Christians on the other side who disagree. And that adds a layer of complexity to this topic. So in our time today, I can't get into all the politics. I'm not gonna unpack all the history and all the traditions. We don't have time for that. What I would like to do is I'd like to lay out the foundation for the historic Jewish faith, explore modern Judaism, the practice of it that we see today, and then look at the differences between it and Christianity. So we're going to start, and we're going to look at the origin of the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. The origin is that they are a chosen people. If you're taking notes, this is the first fill-in-the-blank as you follow along. The origin is you find a chosen people. The foundation of the Jewish faith is that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world that he created through his chosen people. We read this in Genesis chapter 12. It says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This man that God is talking to, Abram, his name later is changed to Abraham. It means the father of many. He is the father of the Jewish people. And just like he promises here, he promises Abraham that he would make his name great. He would multiply his offspring. And through him, all people on the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. So Abraham Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was later changed by God to Israel. Jacob, or Israel, has 12 sons. The 12 sons of Jacob become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Their descendants of the 12 tribes become the Israelites. The land that they dwell in is the land of Israel. One of the 12 sons of Jacob is a man named Judah. He becomes one of the tribes, the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah. That's where the name Jew comes from. It's descendants of the tribe of Judah. So this is kind of the family origin 
of this chosen people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's why in the Bible you'll often hear the reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the reference to God, the God of this chosen people. There's another figure in the story that you need to be aware of. His name is Moses. Moses is considered the great prophet of the Jewish people. And through Moses, God gave the people the law. It's called the Torah in the Hebrew Bible. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. God gave this to the people through Moses. It's instructions about how to live, how to interact with each other, how to establish their society and their community and their nation, instructions on how to worship God, who God is. All these foundational things are found in the Torah. In addition to the Torah, Moses led the people out of captivity in Egypt, and then he organized them into a people. In, in Egypt, they were slaves, they were oppressed, and so as he takes them out of there, he begins to add organization and structure to the people, and then he leads them up to the promised land. So Moses is one of the key figures in understanding historic Jewish faith. When the people get to the promised land, they establish the kingdom, they set up the temple in Jerusalem, and for a time, under kings like David and Solomon, they experience God's blessing in the promised land as they dwell there. But then something happens. Over time, they decide not to follow God anymore. The instructions that he's laid out in the law, the instructions of the Torah on how to live, how to relate, how to interact with one another, how to worship God, they decide to turn from that and do what they want to do. And so an outcome of their disobedience, a consequence, is that the land, the kingdom is split in two. You have Israel in the north becomes a kingdom. Judah in the south becomes a kingdom. Both of them eventually are conquered, and the history of the Jewish people becomes a series of ups and downs from the point that they decide to turn against God. Ups and downs. They, they turn away from God. They experience the consequences. They repent. They come back to God, and you see this happen again and again. Now, a significant event, kind of skipping forward a couple hundred years, a significant event to understanding modern Judaism took place in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. There had been a Jewish uprising. The zealots had taken over the city, and so the Romans came in, and they came down really hard, and they destroyed the temple. Now, before this took place, there were already major shifts that were occurring within the faith, but the destruction of the temple really accelerated and solidified those changes. Some of the changes were it put an end to temple sacrifices. With the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed by the Romans, there was no longer a place to offer sacrifices, so it put an end to temple sacrifices. Also, the practice of the priesthood came to an end. And in those two things ending, what shifted was it solidified the synagogue as the meeting place for Jewish life and practice, and also the authority figures shifted. Because you didn't have priests anymore, the rabbis became the authority figures for Jewish life and practice. And the writings of the rabbis is found in a book called the Talmud. It comes primarily from rabbis in the Pharisaic tradition, and it was finalized in 500 AD. And this is one of the reasons that modern Judaism is often referred to as rabbinic Judaism. Now, because the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament are the same. We agree on those. They have the same content inside of those two things. Because those are the same, sometimes Christians wrongly think that, you know, 
we've got the same Bible, we agree on everything except for Jesus. Kind of like the idea is, you know, they got two-thirds of the way there, and then they stopped at the end of the Old Testament, and if they would just keep reading a little further, well, then they would come to see what we see. Sometimes Christians have this false idea about Judaism and the Jewish faith. But because of the destruction of the temple, and because of the writings and teachings of the rabbis, which are found in the Talmud, the teachings of Judaism have actually continued. And so for centuries after the destruction of the temple, the main practice of Judaism is known as Orthodox Judaism. There were other versions, but that was the main practice. And in Orthodox Judaism, the Talmud is viewed as having divine authority. And so even though in recent time, the few, you know, few centuries back, in recent centuries, we've seen the rise of Reformed Judaism and Conservative Judaism, the Talmud has been the primary book of influence. And so what Judaism is today is very different than what Christians often think of. And what this does, when you understand this, is it helps to explain one of the major reasons that there is a significant why in the road between Christianity and Judaism. But there's another major event before the destruction of the temple that we need to explore, and this is where we need to talk about Jesus and the Jewish people. One of the themes that you'll find in the Hebrew Bible in the Old, Old Testament is that God will not abandon his people. God has these chosen people. He's made a promise to Abraham, through your offspring, all people in the earth will be blessed. He makes this promise. And so even though the people enter into disobedience against God, repeatedly God promises that he's not going to abandon them. And so what he promises to do is to send the Jewish Messiah. And God makes this clear through prophet after prophet that he's going to send the Jewish Messiah. So in Jeremiah 25, we read this. Jeremiah is writing, and he's telling the people what God has says. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. God is promising to send the Messiah to save his people. And he does this again and again through multiple prophets. He promises to not abandon his people, but to send the Messiah. So another time where this happens, Isaiah, another prophet, he says this, Isaiah 49.6. Again, he's, he's telling the people what God has said. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So he's talking about the Messiah. It's too small a thing for the Messiah to simply be the servant and bring back the tribes of Jacob, those of Israel that I've kept. I will also make you, speaking of the Messiah, I will also make you, the Messiah, a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So this promise that God will not abandon his people, but he'll send the Messiah. And if you remember the promise given to Abraham at the very beginning of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith, the promise is that through you I will bless all peoples of the earth. That's what Isaiah is referring to here. He's saying that through this chosen people, the Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah won't just be salvation for those people, which he will be, but he'll also be the salvation to the whole world. So you see this again and again, and this is the hope of the Jewish people. The hope of the Jewish faith is in the Jewish Messiah, that the promise he gave to Abraham, that God will ultimately fulfill that, that he will send the Messiah, and the Messiah will save the people and bring salvation to all people. Through them, all people will be blessed. So 2,000 years ago, there was a large group of Jewish people 
who became convinced that the Messiah came and that the Messiah was named Jesus. Jesus was a first century Jew. In Hebrew, you would say his name, Yeshua. He was born in a Jewish family. His parents were devout. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was dedicated at the temple. He observed the Jewish holidays. And when he began his ministry, he taught in the Jewish synagogues. He taught in the temple in Jerusalem. And his ministry started out being exclusively to the Jewish people. And Jesus made the claim that he was this promised Messiah, the one that God had promised through the prophets, that he was God himself in human form who came to earth to save the people from their sins. And I want to show you one of the historical accounts where Jesus makes this claim. In John chapter 8, John is writing and recording what's taken place, and there's a conversation between Jesus and the, pimp, and the people at the temple in Jerusalem, and this is what happens in John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking. He says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my words will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your words will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Again, Abraham is the founder. He's the the patriarch of the Jewish people, the Jewish faith. Are you greater than Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? There it is, a question of Jesus' identity, right in the temple. Then, skipping ahead a few verses, John 8, verse 58. Jesus is speaking, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, why did they pick up rocks to stone him? Just an interesting note. If you're reading through the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, the story about Jesus' life, and you, you read about a time where they picked up rocks to throw them at Jesus, it's almost always because Jesus has just claimed to be God, to be the Messiah. So in Jewish history, this claim, the claim to be before Abraham was born, I am, this meant something very specific. In Israel's history... When Moses was about to go to Egypt to free the people, the period known as the Exodus, he asks God for his name. He, Moses knows if he just shows up and says to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go, and then he turns to the Israelites and he's like, okay, guys, follow me. They're going to be like, who in the world are you? So he asks God, he says, hey, if I go there, whose authority should I say that I come in? Who, who am I coming and representing if I go to the people and tell them to follow me? And so this is what it says in Exodus 3. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is the name of God. And as you study through the Bible, what you find is it's a word that was so holy that the people wouldn't write it down completely. They would only write down the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. This word is pronounced Yahweh. And so Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Everybody standing there listening to him knew perfectly well that Jesus had just claimed in the temple that he was God. The God that spoke the promise to Abraham. The God that told Moses to go and set the people free and lead them out of Egypt and out of slavery and to the promised land. And the God that gave the Torah. All this stuff. When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, everybody standing there knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. 
He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Messiah, God himself, who came to save the people from their sins. And Jesus actually makes this claim frequently. Even when he's standing before the high priest, right before he's crucified, the high priest asks him point blank in Mark 14. He says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says, I am. I mean, point blank, it can't get any more clear than that. Are you the Messiah? Jesus just looks back at him and says, yes, that's who I am. Jesus repeatedly made this claim. This is what Christians believe. We believe that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. So when God made the promise to Abraham that through your offspring, all people will be blessed, we believe that Jesus is the one that fulfills that. So we call him Jesus Christ. A lot of times people think Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. But Christ is actually a Greek word that is the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. So it'd be more accurate to say Jesus the Christ because it's a title that identifies who he is. He's Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. So as Christians, the word Christian means Christ follower and Christ means Messiah. So we are Messiah followers. This is what we believe. We believe that the Messiah, the one that's been promised, has come, and he's accomplished what God said he would accomplish, bringing salvation to the whole earth. This is what we believe. Jesus creates the major why in the road between Christianity and modern Judaism. Up until the point of Jesus, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, we share that in common, the same content. But then at the point of Jesus, there is a major why in the road that forms. See, as Christians, as one who believe that he is the Messiah and he's come, Jesus shows up on the scene, and because he's God, his teachings and his explanation of the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament is authoritative for us. And then what his followers record in the New Testament is authoritative. So that means that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, both books given to us from God. But if you reject Jesus, if at the point of Jesus, if he's not the Messiah, and you don't head off in the direction of he's the Messiah, and now he's authoritative for my life, then you have what you find in modern Judaism. You have the Talmud and the writings of the rabbis, and they head off in another direction. It's at the point of Jesus that a major why in the road forms between the two religions. There's a lot of major differences, but if you boil it down, it boils down to Jesus. Jesus is the difference. If he is the promised Jewish Messiah, then what Christianity becomes, the writings of the New Testament, Jesus now being God in flesh and having authority because he is that, that becomes the source of how we live and understand. But if he's not, if we reject that, then you have, again, what you find in modern Judaism. I want to show you a video really quickly about a Jewish man who came to believe in this thing that I'm talking about. He came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is the one that fulfills all that the Old Testament, that the Hebrew Scriptures were pointing to. So let's play this video real quick. Growing up, we always understood that we had our Bible and the Gentiles had their Bible, the New Testament and that they were two completely separate books. Because the only people I knew who were believers in Jesus were all people in our public school who were Italian Catholic, I imagined that Jesus was Italian. And so the understanding that he's actually Jewish was, was a shock. 
And then to hear that the New Testament was written by Jews, I, I couldn't believe it. My expectation was that the New Testament was like my grandparents had told me. It was a, a book on how to persecute the Jews and something you should stay away from. Of course, when you're told you should stay away from something, <laughs> curiosity gets the best of you and you've got to see it. When I opened the New Testament, I was expecting to find a handbook on how to persecute the Jews. My grandparents had warned me that it was written by people who killed the Jews. That's what I was expecting to see, and yet when I'm opening it, I'm reading a story written by Jews about Jewish people. The New Testament was a fascinating book. And so as I opened this book in the library, I kind of looked around, made sure that none of my friends had seen me taking a Christian Bible off the shelf. And I open it, here's the first sentence. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So three people are mentioned and they're all Jewish. I was very shocked. And as I continued to read, I'm reading the story of a Jewish man who was born in a Jewish village, in a Jewish country, and one day walks into a synagogue and announces that he is the Messiah. The more I read the words of Jesus, the more I became attracted to him. It was as beautiful as anything I had ever read in any other part of the Bible. As I came to faith that Yeshua, that Jesus was the Messiah, it was clear that that was the most Jewish thing I could do. This is not a person who's a renegade to our people. This is the one who was promised in our Bible, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It is astonishing. If you would just read that chapter, just without the Bible being around it, you would say, oh, this is some Christian Bible. This is Jesus. <laughs> when you realize, though, that it's in the middle of our Bible, our Jewish Bible, when I first came to faith, I dared not tell my father um, because this is a time period in the, the 1970s when there were lots of gurus and cults. And he was very concerned about me getting involved in some crazy sect and going off someplace. So I waited for months. And uh, when I finally told him, he was very skeptical. On his own then, he started to read about Jesus as well. About a year and a half later, I told him that the fellow who wrote one of the books that he had read, that this fellow was giving a lecture in the city of New York. And he agreed to come out to hear that person. And uh, one of the most amazing moments of my life was the speaker said, would everyone here who is a Jewish believer in Jesus, would you raise your hand? And I raised my hand. My father also raised his hand. And I said, I looked over and I said, Pop, he didn't say would all the Jews raise their hand. He said, would all the Jewish believers in Jesus raise their hand? And my father looked over and he said, yes, I, I heard what he said. The decision to come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah was not something that was a momentary lark. It wasn't something that was a passing fad. And I could see changes in myself that I knew were not from within myself. I had kind of tapped in to a truth for our Jewish people that was very powerful. When um, Jesus started his ministry, 
His first words were this, Mark 1.15. He said, the time is fulfilled. And then when he was hanging on the cross just before he died, he announced this. He announced that it is finished. So what Jesus is doing in these two statements, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end, is he's claiming that everything the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, has pointed to, everything the Jewish faith has been hoping for, is fulfilled and accomplished in him. That's the claim that he's making. And he, he backed this up by doing several things, but I want to w- look at one specific way that Jesus did this. One of, the, one of the ways that he fulfilled what the Jewish faith, what the Old Testament had been pointing to. In um, Luke 23, we find a scene. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's about to die. And it says this in Luke 23, starting in verse 44. It says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, what's the significance of that sentence, the curtain of the temple was torn in two? Well, this single supernatural event, it brought to conclusion thousands of years of Jewish practice. See, when Israel was leaving Egypt and God gave the instructions to Moses, he gave the Torah to Moses, part of those instructions included really detailed instructions for how the people were to relate to and worship God. So one of the things that is set up is the priests, individuals called the priests. Moses' brother Aaron was the first priest from Aaron, you have the, they're part of the tribe of Levi, the Levites, the priests were known as the Levites or the Levitical priesthood. The priests are set up. And for the people, for kind of the common man and woman to relate to God, they had to go through the priest. The priest was a representative on behalf of the people who would go and relate to God. So the priests are set up. Another thing that's set up is a place of worship called the tabernacle. It was the place where the people would go and they would worship, and it's the place where the sacrifices would take place. And I want you to to notice in the picture, the floor plan, there's a wall around the outside. There's a gate in the front that the people would enter into. You have the place where the sacrifices would be performed. And then there's that tent. And in that tent, the floor plan of the tent, the first room is the holy place. And then you have the most holy place. And those two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, are separated by a curtain. The holy place, the first room, represented God's royal guest chamber, where God's people symbolically came before him. And then the most holy place represented God's throne room, where you entered into God's presence. Now, for the common man and woman, they weren't allowed to enter into the tent. They could go into the courtyard of the tabernacle, where the sacrifices were performed, but only a priest could enter the holy place. Only the Levites, the priests, were allowed to enter the holy place. But there was only one priest, the high priest, who was able to go through the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And he was only to do this one time a year. And when he would enter into the most holy place, in advance, he would go through a process of purification. And then when he entered the most holy place, he would take a blood sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to cover his guilt and his sin and also to cover the guilt and the sin of the people. It was known as the sacrifice 
of atonement. And the blood was a reminder of the consequences of sin. Now, when you consider these three things, the priests, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices, all three of these things are helping us understand who God is, who we are, what's wrong with us, and also what the solution is. Who God is. God is holy. That's the first thing this reveals. God is a holy God. But we, the people, are guilty. We're guilty of sin. And because of our guilt, we cannot go into the presence of this holy God. If we go into the presence of this holy God because of our guilt, we'll be annihilated. We'll be destroyed. And so that's why this was set up. And we need somebody to represent us to go on our behalf in front of this holy God. So the priests were put in place. But in order for the priests to go before this holy God, there had to be something that covered the sin. And so the sacrifices, the sacrifices covered the sin. It covered the guilt of the people. And it was a blood sacrifice because what they understood was that because of sin, we are deserving of death. And so there had to be a life payment for the sin so that the sin could be covered. It could be atoned for. The guilt could be removed and forgiven. So what you find as you study this is the layout of the tabernacle, the role of the priest, the practice of the sacrifices, was an elaborate visual aid that helped the people understand the problem and also the solution. And they, they didn't think that God actually lived in the tent. They knew that this one God who created everything, who was all-powerful and all-present, they knew that this one God didn't live in the tent. But this practice helped them remember that they are a guilty people and God is a holy God and something has to be done to solve the problem of their sins. Somebody has to go before God on their behalf and make atonement for what they've done. So eventually the tabernacle, it finds its permanent home in the temple that Solomon built. Here's a rendering of the temple that Solomon built. Again, you'll notice that there's the holy place, the most holy place, and then the curtain is separating the holy place and the most holy place. So even though it, the tent becomes permanent in the temple, you still have the same layout and the same practices. Now this temple that Solomon built was eventually destroyed, but then men like Ezra and Nehemiah, they built a new temple and then Herod expanded on it. So here's a rendering of the temple in Jesus' day. This is what the temple would have looked like, but you have the outer courtyard, you have that structure, you go into the structure, the first room was the holy place, the second room was the most holy place, and there was a curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, symbolic of our separation from God because of our sin. That's why the curtain was in place. Now this temple that Jesus would have gone to, there's only, this is the temple that was destroyed in AD 70, and there's still one wall remaining after it was destroyed, and the wall is referred to as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. It's where people go to place their prayers. So they're still part of this temple remaining, but the temple, again, was destroyed. Now, at the moment that Jesus died, what it says in the Bible is it says that the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two by God. The reason that this happened was because Jesus took the sacrifice of his perfect divine life into God's presence, and his sacrifice satisfied God's wrath against sin. He solved the problem of guilt. And the curtain that symbolizes the separation between a guilty people and a holy God came down once and for all. 
So this is how one New Testament writer who's explaining these events to the Jewish people, this is what he says in Hebrews 10. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the people didn't have confidence. They had to have priests do it for them. But now, because of the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Jesus, in what he accomplished in his life, fulfills everything that the Jewish faith was pointing to. The sacrifice of his life satisfies God's wrath against sin. And now that curtain that separates a holy God from a guilty people, it's no longer there. It means that we, a guilty people, can be forgiven of our sins and go into the presence of God and have a relationship with him because Jesus has become the high priest and has covered, made atonement for our sins. Everything that it was pointing to is satisfied and accomplished by what Jesus does. This is why it's good news. And it's not just good news for the Jewish people. It is good news for the Jewish people. Everything that it was pointing to is accomplished in Jesus. But just like the promise that was made to Abraham, that through your offspring, all nations of the earth, all peoples will be blessed through you, this is what brings salvation to the whole world. This is why it's not just good news for the Jewish people. This is good news for all people. Because through this chosen people... Abraham is the father, the promise given to him through his offspring, the chosen people. God has sent his son, Jesus the Messiah, to solve the problem of sin and allow us to have a relationship with him. So when you consider Christianity and Judaism, Jesus is the point at which a major why in the road appears. But Jesus is the one that fulfills everything that the Jewish faith has been pointing to. He is the promised Messiah who came and gave his life so that the curtain that separates a guilty people from a holy God could be torn down and we can now have a relationship with this God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your plan, through history, you have revealed yourself in a way that's verifiable and you've revealed yourself in a way that over time you've helped us understand these really, really important realities about what the problem is, who you are, and what the solution needs to be. I thank you for revealing that over time. I thank you for choosing you choosing Abraham and giving the promise to Abraham and then continuing and being faithful to that promise through the chosen people, the Jewish people. And so, God, I, I pray what the Apostle Paul prayed when he said that his heart's desire and his prayer to God for the Israelites is for their salvation. And so, God, I do pray. I pray for people who have not come to the conclusion that you are the promised Messiah. You're everything that the, that the faith is pointing to and hoping in, Jesus. I pray that you would allow them to come to see this truth and realize that because of you, guilt can be atoned for, sin can be atoned for. And we can be made right and enter into the presence of God the Father and have a relationship. Again, God, I thank you for your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. 
Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.